Hello, guys. Welcome back. This week, I'm going to be reading to you another one. I mean, I love all the authors, but this one is right up there as one of my favorite authors. His name is Lafcadio Hearn, and he lived a very interesting life, which at first wasn't the easiest for him, but turned out pretty cool. And he writes and is well-respected for writing a lot of short Japanese uh, ghost stories or like folk tales, lore, what have you. So tonight, I want to share with you guys a story called A Story of Divination. And we'll be reading more than one story, but that will be the first one. Please make sure to check out the Facebook Nighttime Short Stories page where you will get to know more about Lefkadio Hearn. And here's my cat, Rory. Um, and you will learn more about his interesting life and some really cool facts about him as well. Um, also... Please make sure that if you know of anyone who would love to listen to a podcast like this one to share it with them, I really appreciate it. This is a podcast that goes out every Friday night at 9.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. My name is Ash, and this right here is Rory. <laughs> so this week, like I said before... We will be reading Lafcadio Hearn, and the first story shall be a story of divination. Let's get started, shall we? This is going to be interesting doing this with the cat. Yes, we do. I once knew a fortune teller who really believed in the science that he professed. He had learned as a student of the old Chinese philosophy to believe in divination long before he thought of practicing it. During his youth, he had been in the service of a wealthy daimyo. I will stop right here and apologize ahead of time for my butchering of the Japanese language. But subsequently, like thousands of other samurai, found himself reduced to desperate straits by the local and social and political changes in Meiji. It was then that he became a fortune teller, an interrent Urania, traveling on foot from town to town and returning to his home rarely more than once a year with the proceeds of his journey as a fortune teller. He was tolerably successful, chiefly, I think, because of his perfect sincerity and because of a peculiar, gentle manner that invited confidence. His system was the old scholarly one. He used the book known to English readers as the Yi King, also a set of ebony blocks, which could also be arranged as to form any of the Chinese hexagrams. And he always began his divination with an earnest prayer to the gods. <clears throat> The system itself he held in an infallible in the hands of a master. He confessed that he had made some erroneous predictions, but he said that these mistakes had been entirely due to his own miscomprehension of certain texts or diagrams. To do him justice, 
I must mention that in my own case, he told me of a fortune four times. His prediction were fulfilled in such wise that I became afraid of them. You may disbelieve in fortune telling, intellectually scorn it, but something of inherited superstitious tendency lurks within most of us, and a few strange experiences can so appeal to that inheritance as to induce the most unreasoning hope or fear of the good or bad luck promised to you by some diviner. Really, to see our future would be a misery. Imagine the result of knowing that there must happen to you within the next two months some terrible misfortune that you cannot possibly provide against. He was already an old man when I first saw him in Lasmu. Certainly more than 60 years of age, but looking very much younger. Afterwards, I met him in Osaka, in Kyoto, and in Kobe. More than once, I tried to persuade him to pass the colder months in the winter season under my roof, for he possessed an extraordinary knowledge of traditions and could have been in estimable service to me in a literary way, but partly because the habit of wandering had become with him a second nature. And partly because of a love of independence as savage as a gypsy's, I was never able to keep him with me for more than two days at a time. Every year he used to come to Tokyo, usually in the latter part of autumn, and for several weeks he would flit about the city from district to district and vanish again. But during these fugitive trips, he never failed to visit me, bringing welcome news of Izmu people and places, bringing some queer little present, generally a religious kind, from some famous place of pilgrimage. On these occasions, I could get a few hours chat with him. Sometimes the talks was of strange things seen or heard during his recent journey. Sometimes it turned upon old legends or beliefs. Sometimes it was about the fortune telling. Last time we met, he told me of an exact Chinese science of divination, which he regretted never having been able to learn. Anyone learned in that science, he said, would be able, for example, not only to tell you the exact time at which any post or beam of this house will yield to decay, but even to tell you the direction of the breaking and all its results. I can best explain what I mean by relating story. The story is about a famous Chinese fortune teller whom we call Japan Shoko Setsu. And it is written in the book by Kwa Shin Eki, which is a book of divination. While still a very young man, Shoko Setsu obtained a high position by reason of his learning and virtue, but he resigned it and went into solitude that he might give his whole time to study. For years thereafter, he lived alone in a hut among the mountains, studying without a fire in winter and without a fan in summer, writing his thoughts upon the wall of his room for a lack of paper, and using only a tile for his pillow. One day in the period of greatest summer heat, he found himself overcome by drowsiness, and he lay down to rest with his tile under his head. Scarcely had he fallen asleep when a rat ran across his face and woke him with a start. Feeling angry, he seized the tile and flung it at the rat, but the rat escaped unhurt, and the tile was broken. Shoko Setsu looked sorrowfully at the fragments of his pillow and reproached himself for his hastiness. Then suddenly he perceived upon the freshly exposed clay of the broken tile some Chinese characters believed between 
the upper and lower surface. Thinking this very strange, he picked up the pieces and carefully examined them. He found that along the line of the fracture, 17 characters had been written within the clay before the tile had been baked. And the characters read thus in the year of the hare, in the fourth month and the seventeenth day at the hour of the serpent. This tile, after serving as a pillow, will be thrown at a rot and broken. Now, in the prediction that had really been fulfilled at the hour of the serpent and the seventeenth day of the fourth month of the year of the hare, greatly astonished Shoko Setsu once again. He looked at the fragments and discovered the seal and the name on the maker. And once he left his hut and taking with him the pieces of the tile, hurried to the neighboring town in search of the tile maker. He found the tile maker in the course of a day and showed him the broken tile and asked him about its history. After having carefully examined the shards, the tile maker said, This tile was made in my house, but the characters in the clay were written by an old man, a fortune teller, who asked permission to write upon the tile before it was baked. Do you know where he lives? asked Shoko Setsu. He used to live, the tile maker answered, not so very far from here, and I can show you the way to the house, but I do not know his name. Having been guided to the house, Shoko Setsu presented himself at the entrance and asked for permission to speak to the old man. A serving student courteously invited him to enter and ushered him into an apartment where several young men were at study. As Shokusetsu took a seat, all the youths saluted him. Then the one who had at first addressed him bowed and said, We are grieved to inform you that our master died a few days ago, but we have been waiting for you because he predicted that you would come today to this house at this very hour. Your name is Shokusetsu, and our master told us to give you a book which he believed would be of service to you. Here is the book. Please accept it. Shokusetsu was not less delighted than surprised, for the book was a manuscript of the rarest and most precious kind, containing all the secrets of the science of divination. After having thanked the young men and properly expressed his regret for the death of their teacher, he went back to his hut and there immediately proceeded to test the worth of the book by consulting its pages in regard to its own fortune. The book suggested to him that on the set side of this dwelling at a particularly good spot in one corner of the hut, great luck awaited him. He dug at the place indicated and found a jar consisting of gold, enough to make him a very wealthy man. My old acquaintance left this world as lonesomely as he had lived in it. Last winter, while crossing a mountain range, he was overtaken by a snowstorm and lost his way. Many days later, he was found standing erect at the foot of a pine with his little pack strapped to his shoulders, a statue of ice arms folded and eyes closed as in meditation. Probably while waiting for the storm to pass, he had yielded to the drowsiness of cold and the drift had risen over him as he slept. Hearing of this strange death, I remembered the old Japanese saying, Uranea Minoi Shiritsu, the fortune teller knows not his own fate. The end. The reason I picked this one, which I really enjoy, um, is because I do the divination of which he speaks, but it's not in dice. It's used with I Ching coins, and I Ching is the divination system where you toss these three coins, and depending on how they land facing up or down, um, it creates these these 
lines of which you can then predict different things, you know, and ask questions of it. And I love it. It's actually pretty accurate. It's called I Ching, I-C-H-I-N-G, I Ching. And I've had so much fun with it over the years. I use the book. Do I have it here? Oh, I do. Just for anybody who's interested. Hillary Barrett, I Ching. I got it for $6 online. It's probably backwards. I'm not sure. But I recommend it. All you need is three coins of the same type and a good I Ching book. Okay. So let's go on. <laughs> okay. just getting to my next story here. I do want to thank everybody who is coming to the Facebook Nighttime Short Stories page because we do poetry, arts, um, photos, quotes, bios, interesting facts about each of the authors that are showcased in the week. So if you want to learn more about Lafcadio Hearn, which I think you definitely want to, he is really amazing along with some of the other authors we had. Like last week, we had Ambrose Bierce. He randomly went missing. Um, these are definitely people you want to learn more about. They're really fascinating, and I recommend it. So, okay, let's see. That is not the one I wanted. All right. So the next story that I'm going to read is called Fragment, and again, by Lafcadio Hearn. And it was at the hour of sunset that they came to the foot of the mountain. There was in that place no sign of light, neither a token of water, nor trace of plant, nor shadow of flying bird, nothing but desolation rising in desolation. And the summit was lost in heaven. Then the Bodhisattva said to his young companion, What you have asked to see will be shown to you, but the place of vision is far and the way is rude. Follow after me and do not fear. Strength will be given to you. Twilight gloomed about them as they climbed. There was no beaten path nor any mark of former human visitation. And the way was over an endless heaping of tumbled fragments that rolled and turned beneath the, the fact. Sometimes a mass dislodged would clatter down the hollow echoings. Sometimes the substance trodden would burst like an empty shell. Stars pointed and thrilled and the darkness deepened. Do not fear, my son, said the Bodo Vista, guiding danger there is none, though the way be grim. Under the stars they climbed. Fast, fast, mounting by help of power, superhuman. High zones of mist they passed, and they saw below them, ever widening as they climbed, 
as soundless blood of cloud, like the tide of a milky sea. Hour after hour they climbed, and forms invisible yielded to their tread with dull, soft crashings, and faint, cold fires lighted and died at every breaking. And once the pilgrim youth laid a hand on a something smooth that was not stone and lifted it, and dimly saw the cheekless gib of death. Linger not thus, my son, urged the voice of the teacher. The summit that we must gain is very far away. On through the dark they climbed and felt continually beneath them the soft, strange breakings and saw the icy fires warm and die till the rim of the night turned gray and the stars began to fall and the east began to bloom. Yet still they climbed fast, fast mounting by help of power superhuman. About them now was frigidness of death and silence tremendous. A gold flame kindled in the east. The first to the pilgrim's gaze, the steeps revealed their nakedness and a trembling seized him and a ghastly fear. For there were not any ground, neither beneath him, nor about him, nor above him, but a heaping only monstrous and measureless of skulls and fragments of skulls and dust of bone, with the shimmer of shed teeth strewn through the drift of it, like the shimmer of scrags of shell in the rock of a tide. Do not fear, my son, cried the voice of the Bodhisattva, only the strong of the heart can win to the place of the vision. Bodhisattva. What was I calling it? Bodhavista? Bodhisattva. Don't mind me. Behind them, the world had vanished. Nothing remained but the clouds beneath and the skies above, and the heaping of skulls between, up slanting, out of sight. Then the sun climbed with the climbers, and there was no warmth in the light of him, but coldness sharp as a sword, and the horror of stupendous height and the nightmare of stupendous death depths and the terror of silence ever grew and grew and weighed upon the pilgrim and held his feet so that suddenly all power departed from him and he moaned like a sleeper in dreams hasten hasten my son cried the buddha stava the day is brief and the summit is very far away but the pilgrim shrieked i fear i fear unspeakably and the power was departed from me the power will return, my son, made the answer of the Bodhisattva. Look now below you and above you and about you and tell me what you see. I cannot, cried the pilgrim, trembling and clinging. I dare not look beneath, before me and about me. There is nothing but skulls of men. And yet, my son, said the Bodhisattva, laughing softly, and yet you do not know what this mountain is made. The other shuddering repeated, I fear. Unutterably a fear, there is nothing but skulls of men. And mountains of skulls it is, responded the Bodhisattva. But know, my son, that all of them are your own. Each has at some time been the nest of your dreams and illusions and desires. Not even one of them is the skull of any other being. All, all without exception, have been yours in the billions of your former lives. The end. Those of you that are on Spotify will get to watch me read this for you guys on video. Otherwise, thank you as well on Apple Podcast and iHeartRadio.
for listening to the nighttime short story broadcast. Again, my name is Ash. Every Friday night at 9.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, come and hang out and check out the latest author of the week. Take care, guys. Until we meet again.